Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to um, an amazing Sunday session. So thank you for joining us. We had to uh, move it one day. Um, I just, uh, of course, have to call out the incredible um, khutbah from last Friday, which was really timely, very powerful, and has been picked up in a number of places, you know, on Twitter, on Reddit, um, just across social media. The title is The Pulpit of Truth and the Battle Over Women's Hair. Um, and it is a really um, one of these things, uh, one of these khutbas that where you you listen and you just feel very um, happy to hear the truth. It's very validating. Um, you know, it's not like I mean, no one calls it like Sheikh does, um, but obviously he talks about the the woman who was killed um, in Iran, um, who because she was picked up by the morality police um, for not wearing the hijab the right way. Um, and, you know, Sheikh talks about how now the battleground for faith has fallen on, you know, the hijab or on women's hair. Because, you know, I ironically, you've got people in Iran, um, you know, taking off the hijab and fighting for the right to do that. And then you've got people in France uh, or India fighting for the right to keep it on. You know, clearly this is not just about hair and, um, and a headscarf, but it's much more. It's about women's rights. And, you know, there's so much in this really important khutbah and you know it he's speaking and has an amazing way of always calling us back to sort of the obvious point when you are at the prophet's pulpit the pulpit of truth you know if you imagine like how would the prophet muhammad peace be upon him react if he came you know into our world today to see the battles and how they're being fought and yes god is someone who gives women hair and then is basically obsessed with whether that hair is covered or not. And what does, you know, what an insult to the power of God and the beauty and the divinity of God. So anyway, I really encourage people to watch it, share it. Um, I think it's, you know, one of these things that is, um, it's just so important for everyone to hear and reflect upon. Um, and then I just wanted to, you know, I always um, find interesting things that I come across um, as I'm listening to independent news, um, some statistics that I'd like to bring forward um, that are just really um, mind-twisting. Um, the first one is that, let me see, the heading is, excuse me, I'm like, oops, where did my head, headline go? The number of ultra-rich in the world hits an all-time high as someone dies from hunger every four seconds. And you know, we often talk here obviously about the, the rich and the powerful, but this is a report that just came out, an analysis that was published by Credit Suisse, that there were 218,200 ultra high net worth people in the world in 2021, which is an increase of 46,000 from the previous year. So the share of the world's wealth held by the richest 1%, has increased from 44% to 46% last year, and that profits from soaring food prices have enriched billionaires around the world by a collective $382 billion, which is just unbelievable when you see what's happening in Somalia and um, the, you know, in Africa, just people around the world that are starving and, and dying. And again, like that amazing statistic that someone dies every four seconds. Um, and along those lines of the abuses of the rich and powerful, there was a very interesting set of reports that came out that have to do with life expectancy. And um, apparently it's a really big deal when a country's life expectancy like moves by even a fraction of a point. 
but notably um, from 2020 to 2021 in the US life expectancy actually fell a, a full year. Um, and if you break it down, there's a report that came out in the New York Times. If you break it down by, you know, by groups, um, this is a, a New York Times, US life expectancy falls again in a historic setback that clearly, you know, um, certain communities were hit harder than others, like the Native American community and the Alaska Native communities. Um, and so in some cases, life expectancy fell by four years. Um, and what is the most striking about this is that when you take a look at what we as a rich country in the world um, have in terms of uh, gross uh, GDP um, per, per capita, it's 66,000 per person. And so we're a wealthy country, but we die as if we are a poor country. We die, um, or our life expectancy um, and life uh, and rates of death are at the same levels of people who have um, an $8,000 GDP per capita. And you know, a lot of this, um, obviously, you know, COVID hit people really hard. But what this really highlights is the our healthcare system. And what I thought that was very also striking was there was a report that came out. Um, from Yale um, about the COVID, um, that if we had had universal health care or single-payer health care, as much of the world does, uh, up to a third of COVID deaths could have been prevented. And year to year, um, COVID costs, we could have saved $110 billion just in one year's worth of COVID hospital costs. And in a non-COVID world, um, we could have saved $438 billion per year if we had a single payer system. So obviously this, these are like profits that go into somebody's pocket and you see how much resistance in America goes up against you know, having a single payer system. You know, it makes a lot of sense when people can't afford and to go get health treatment, they, they hold off and they wait until things get so bad that it becomes you know, a, a lot more difficult to treat and a lot more expensive. But you know, it just highlights again like you know, in our world, we, you know, we are such a wealthy nation and we resist so much, um, you know, what, what can actually help uplift the, you know, the people at the bottom of, of the population. And this to me feels so much like an Islamic cause. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, Bernie Sanders is out there fighting for single payer every single day and people like kind of, you know, wipe, you know, kind of dismiss him as this crazy person. But when you see the actual cost of not having something like that, this feels to me like a cause that so many of us should get behind, um, just f to uplift humanity, uplift our, our health system, our you know, and just even from a, a, a profit perspective. I mean, that's you know, uh, it makes a lot of sense to save that kind of money because it comes obviously out of you know um, things that we could be spending on other things. So that was just very um, interesting. And lastly. <laughs> shifting gears I just wanted to um, thank people um, if you get my weekly email you know that unfortunately this past week we had to say goodbye to our dear husky Oso um, who passed away and reached a point where his um, his quality of life had just declined so much that it really made most sense to um, you know help him make the transition and we actually um, I I found someone who made house calls and um, can come and help you know um, transition your your pet or you know basically help him go to sleep and I, I wanted to just talk about that because I, I was really surprised I mean I you know it was a very emotional time it was very sad you know and a lot of us have been so you know connected to Oso and his condition and seeing the decline over the past month 
but alhamdulillah, by the by the time it was time to go, it was it was clear, and so it was it was the right decision. Um, but I became aware of these this this you know service that when people come, and this one the woman who came was a vet who um, was very kind. She had started this business because when she had her own um, you know very close dog like companion um, love of her life who passed away um, and when it was that her pet's final hour her best friend who was also a vet came to her home and you know also you know helped her dog transition and it was a really um, monumentous thing for her because she felt like you know her dog had given her so much that the least she could do is make her final moments on this earth more comfortable you know where she could pass in familiar surroundings um, you know and so she she took a lot of time to explain to me you know like the, these the dogs give us so much during their lifetime that the least we can do is give them the gift of dignity when they die because a lot of times when you actually have to take you know your pets to get euthanized you have to if they're you know in poor condition like Oso was not in a condition where I could very easily pick him up put him in the car take him to a vet you know it would have been a really horrific uncomfortable just traumatizing last few moments of life but you know, she pointed out that you know this is a way for us to give the gift of dignity to our animals and to you know animals that we love so much, and it just struck me so much. This is so Islamic, right? I mean, you want to be surrounded in love. You want to be surrounded in you know in your home with familiar people. Um, you don't want to be carted around, um, and you want to die in dignity. And um, you know, this this whole month with Oso as he was in decline really made me feel bonded and connected with him as just another creature on this planet like myself, you know, a creature of God on my journey, you know, coming to the end of my life at some point. Um, what more would I want than to be in familiar surroundings with people that I love, you know, and to let me have that last moment pass in peace. And so I was just really struck by that. And, you know, and she, when she came, we were actually praying Aisha prayers. And so I was telling her, you know, she could hear the prayers going on in the background. And I said, yeah, they were, we're all sort of praying and praying for Oso. And she was struck by how beautiful that was. And, you know, it just always makes me think about, you know, our condition as Muslims. You know, I, I still got a lot of feedback. I, you know, people, thank you very much for the very kind messages that people have sent. And I also did get messages from people that tried to educate me on how, you know, pets are... It's okay to have pets, but they're basically not meant to be, you know, in the house with you as part of your family. You know, I mean, which is, you know, they, no matter how nicely you couch a message like that, it's still not very nice. And I feel like Muslims could do so much more um, to, you know, move forward on this part in understanding how God, uh, how, how dogs are truly a gift from God and animals are a gift from God and we all share with them you know, a need for dignity and, um, you know, and love. So this was one of these moments that, um, you know, meeting someone who was so Islamic in, in this passing of life that I just, it was a real point of reflection. So I just, I wanted to share that. Um, and, you know, inshallah, I've, I continue to pray that we can elevate the position of dogs um, within, you know, our, our, the Muslim community and that hopefully um, you know people have an opportunity to really experience like the love the the absolute beauty of um, of these creatures um, so you know there's so much for us to learn from from the life of a dog so um, anyway thank you so much for being with us um, I with I'm so excited to begin on our journey with Sora al Toba tonight and I think inshallah it will be several sessions we'll see but um, thank you for joining us Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. 
سبحان الله الحلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى محمد خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري واسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Um, okay, so Surah At-Tawbah will start our journey with Surah At-Tawbah because today is Sunday. Um, we want to make sure we end. Uh, I think Aisha now is at uh, 8.40. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we we want to make sure that we end around that time. Uh, um, because people have to go to work on Monday. So inshallah, I mean, I'm not sure uh, how how many halakhas it would take to go through Surah At-Tawbah. But... Um, The entire approach that I have taken in in this project, we haven't uh, spoken about, uh, at least we haven't spoken in, in the context of Project Ulum about Surat al-Fatiha yet. But uh, you start out with basically a, a, a covenant a contract that you are signing with Allah, that you are a covenant that binds you, binds your existence. Um, and that covenant is articulated in Surah Al-Fatiha. And we, we re-articulate this covenant repeatedly, all the time. You know, in, in when when we seek protection, we read in Fatha. When someone passes away, we read in Fatha. When we pray, we read in Fatha. Uh, the, the, the amount of Sunnah that you ought to read in Fatha before you sleep, that you read in Fatha when you wake up, that it, it permeates um, so much. And the, the essence of and inshallah, I mean, we'll 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 get to Surah Al-Fatiha within the context of Project Room, inshallah. But the 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 there is a core supplication in Surah Al-Fatiha, Hidina Surat Al-Mustaqim, that a prayer for to be anchored in the righteous path. And if one, the Quran is but a journey, an educational journey as to the righteous path. And that is precisely why that for those who take the obligation that they undertake 
when they make the supplication in Surah Al-Fatiha, Hidina Salat Al-Mustaqim. For those who take this this undertaking seriously, they they must understand, they must comprehend the message of the Quran. And the message of the Quran in the as we saw in the Meccan period, it establishes various normative moral commands in the Medinian period, it walks you through a living example of how in the in in this case study that we have involving the Prophet and the companions, how they negotiated moral challenges that confronted them. So in in many ways, we are seeing a living example of the fulfillment of the moral principles of the established in, in Mecca. So Surah At-Tawbah is... How, uh, uh, the the chapter before the last chapter in this journey that the Quran has taken us on as to what the righteous path is about what the right the the the, the values that are embodied within the righteous path, the many pitfalls that Allah repeatedly warns us about in the righteous path, um, the role of the past, the role of time, the role of space in reflecting upon and interacting with the righteous path. And Surah At-Tawbah, as we will see, inshallah, it, it comes at quite late in the Hijri period, so it is revealed in the ninth Hijri year. It is the surah right before the last surah, Al-Ma'idah, Major, the last major surah. Um, so, and the fortunes of Muslims have materially changed. As we saw, Mecca has been defeated. Quraysh, so we, we, Quraysh has folded effectively. Um, but what is, what, what we'll find, what is, there's a, there, we'll, there's a sort of a, a bit of a historical puzzle about Surah Tawbah, which we'll talk about, but that, Although so many of the reports tell us that um, Surah At-Tawbah was revealed a year after Fath Makkah, 
the beginning of Surah At-Tawbah itself seems to be still anchored around the events of Fath Makkah. And Surah At-Tawbah is, there's something rather interesting about it is that it addresses a set of events that span over a number of military conflicts. So it um, um, so it part of it seemed to address the events of Fath Makkah. Uh, parts of it address the battle with the tribe of Hosefa. Um, what was the name of this battle? Um, no, I'm blanking out as to the name of the battle. To, uh, um, no, it was the, before, the battle before Tabuk. Um, Hunayn, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure, yeah, it is Hunayn. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the, so the Battle of Hunayn, where Muslims are... Uh, are confronting the, the the tribes of Hawazin and and uh, Thaqif, and we'll talk. And then it also parts of it address the Battle of Tabuk. So you have three external events. But although so many um, scholars in the Islamic tradition have focused and and often talk about um, Surah At-Tawbah as the the surah that is most externally focused, meaning focused on what Muslims should do vis-a-vis non-Muslims. And often, in fact, Surah At-Tawbah is the surah that is often cited by those who advocate or those who believe that the uh, so-called uh, Ayat al-Sayf or the, um, the, the verse of the sword um, the, and that this verse abrogates so many other uh, earlier revelation that is, as we'll talk about, that does not accept aggression. And so, I mean, but even, so there are those who say, who f- completely focus on what they call the, the uh, sword verse or ayat al-sayf, and they insist that Surah At-Tawbah is basically about dividing the universe into the abode of Islam and the abode of kufr, the abode of infidels, and that the now the, the there is a, a new world order in which uh, Muslims are uh, charged with fighting against um, 
all infidels until either they pay the, the jizya or they conclude a, some type of peace treaty. Um, as we will see, this is, how do you put it, this entirely misses the point of Surah at In fact, as we will see, the majority of Surah at is not about what you do with the external front. It's not about the external front at all, but it is actually about the internal front. And as we will see that Surah At-Tawbah, in fact, the earliest traditions about it is that it was, it is the only surah in the Quran where there is an, in, in, an oversupply, many different potential names were proposed for the surah. Of course, they eventually were all weeded out to the name Surah At-Tawbah. But when we look at the old, the range of potential titles for the Surah, they also shed light on the impact of the Surah. The names proposed, the titles proposed for the Surah, when we look at the range of titles, they are rather a strong indication for the way that the surah was received by the, by the earliest generations. And the way that it was received is that it is the surah that puts How to put it? Um, exposes a Muslim before himself or herself, and it comes at this point of victory and asks. I mean, it, it, again, point of victory. In fact, a number of victories, and asks in a very uncomfortable way, who is a real Muslim? Okay. So, the list in, in the tradition as to potential titles for the surah is rather uh, long, but I'll, I'll just read the Arabic first and then I'll, I'll summarize because it will take us too, too long to, to go title by title. But proposals for the title or, or traditions or uh, uh, yeah, proposed titles that eventually, that just didn't survive. 
included Surah Al-Azab, Surah Al-Fadiha, Surah Al-Bahus, Surah Al-Muba'thira, Surah Al-Muqashqasha, Surah Al-Mukhziya, Surah Al-Muthira, Surah Al-Hafira, Surah Al-Munakkila, Surah Al-Mudamdima. Now, all of these proposed titles, perhaps with the, even even the title Surat Al-Azab, I mean, maybe, maybe an exception, but not even that is, one can make a very good argument that it's not an exception. All indicate that it is a surah that, caused a great deal of social upheaval and to just come out and, and, and skip ahead a little bit and to put the issue it, it caused a great deal of social upheaval by putting the question even more than any other surah in the Qur'an, even more than Surah Al-Munafiqun, the hypocrites, by putting a question, to what extent are you or anyone else a hypocrite? And there is something that also in the interpretive tradition has sort of, it's, it's noticed because they talk about it, but it is um, the impact of this element is in, in the later centuries is not like the impact in the early centuries. And that is the fact that it gets Muslims to confront at this critical juncture as we say, as we know, in retrospect, we are entering the final act. We are now, you know, step, setting step in the stage towards the final act. Um, by putting squarely before Muslims the question of to what extent do you really have faith? And as we will see, when when you, you take when you take the surah and you take the entire surah, you study the entire surah. You don't just pluck a few ayat and out of context. You will see. You will be asking yourself: In what way is this surah about? Ayat to safe the, the the verse of the sword, because in in reality this surah is not about um, fighting with an external enemy. It the 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 perspective of the of of the surah is entirely towards the inside. It's entirely introverted at a time when Islam is 
clearly Muslims have entered now the stage of wide dissemination and wide adherence, but it is extremely instructive that instead of Allah coming and saying to Muslims at this point, well, great, great job. Now, you know, God promised you victory and victory was delivered. It, it comes in and it says, it, as, as we'll see, it poses a set of specific particular questions to forever sort of anchor that challenge of, well, to what extent is Islam a reality in your heart? And to what extent are you just sucked in by issues of identity and um, sort of just going along with with whatever is familiar and whatever is, uh, which is, again, quite remarkable. But it's in many ways, I mean, the same discomfort that the early Muslims uh, felt about Surah At-Tawbah and all the, the different proposed titles reflect that, that it was a, a surah that made a great, a, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable and the titles reflect that. You know, when you say Al-Mukhziya, you know, or Al-Muqashkasha, or Al-Mudamdima, it's like the surah that comes in and says, separates the real from the shaf. And these various titles suggest that. And of course, ultimately, um, keeping with a methodology that has developed, the decision was made, or or eventually, sort of keeping with the, with a particular methodology, that the title of the surah, of the surah should be from a a a a word and a concept that is more literal within the surah rather than an interpretive concept. In the same way, you know, like Surah Al-Kahf is, is the, the surah, the title is the cave, just simply a not, not an interpretive concept because that was rather, um, that was safer. Typically, when we when a discussion of the surah um, starts out with the fact that this is the only surah in the Quran in which all the surah in the Quran begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, except Surah At-Tawbah. Now, there has been a great deal written about why some of the interpretations are just simply absurd. Uh, some interpretations are more plausible. But, you know, I, I, although, let's talk a little bit about, about that. So, 
we don't have the or it, it as reported by the Prophet that the, the Prophet didn't read when reciting Surah Tawbah did not begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Now, of course, the most obvious answer as to why is that, well, that's the way he received it. And in the same way that you have surah that begin with Alif Lam Mim and that's the way that the Prophet ﷺ received it, so that's the way he transmitted it. Surah At-Tawbah was received in that way. So many commentators said, well, you know, that's the answer, and that's good enough. The, 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 we, in the same way, we, we really can't answer why, what is these mutaqatti'ati, you know, alif, lam, mim, or, or the letters mean, uh, why Surah At-Tawbah lacked Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, we, we, you know, only Allah and Gabriel would know the, the answer, um, and we should just leave it at that. Others said that, no, Surah At-Tawbah, um, was initially part or a continuation of Surah Al-Anfal. That it was one Surah. And then that the Prophet ﷺ came and said, no, the, the, this part, this later part, should be separated into a separate surah. Others said that actually there was a disagreement among the companions after the death of the Prophet as to whether it was a part of Surah Al-Anfal or it was not a part of Surah Al-Anfal and the, the group that said that no, it is not a part of Surah Al-Anfal won, but that the compromise was to set out Surah Al-Tawbah as its own surah but without Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. There are even other narratives that get, that just get really absurd, like the narrative that says Surah Al-Tawbah used to be a, a very long surah, as long as Surah Al-Baqarah, and then um, this is all that was preserved from it. These interpretations after having looked at them with in some detail, there are all of um, very questionable authenticity, to say the least. Uh, there is really no reliable report that Surah At-Tawbah was ever part of Surah Al-Anfal. And there is even no reliable report that there was actually ever a disagreement after the death of the Prophet والسلام, as to whether it was part of Surah Al-Anfal or not. The, the report that we have about this is from a decisively unreliable source. Um, uh, 
sim, same thing with Surah Tawbah being a much longer surah, the, the size of Al-Baqarah, and again, an extremely unreliable source, and in fact, among we can call it among the Israelite traditions. Some have said that the beginning of Surah Tawbah was to put was to underscore the termination of the peace treaty with the the tribes who had entered a peace treaty with Muslims, including Quraysh. And that this treaty was violated by the non-Muslim side and that because it was violated, it was null and void. And the practice of Arabs before Islam was that when there was a some type of agreement, treaties were never written, but when there was some type of treaty in oral form between one tribe and another, and the, the treaty was for any reason to be terminated, including because of a breach of the treaty, was to not mention Allah's name. And that that practice was simply continued in Surah At-Tawbah. I looked at, at this again in some detail. Um, and I didn't find anything convincing about that narrative. One, I couldn't find independent confirmation that that was indeed the practice of Arabs. Independent confirmation means that other than the report that is telling me that this was the practice of Arabs, to find some other source affirming that this was in fact the practice of Arabs. Um, And the narrative that says that this was the practice of Arabs, that when they would terminate a treaty, they wouldn't say the, the name of Allah and, and that this was respected. Uh, again, it is through isolated means of transmission and also contradicted. So contradicted, for instance, the, the reports say uh, Ibn Abbas said, but then we have another tradition where Ibn Abbas says exactly the opposite. Um, okay. Another, which might be the closest of them for in terms of a possible interpretation, or at least a potentially convincing interpretation, is that which is a very interesting tra tradition or set of reports, that Surat al-Tawbah at a time of victory and um, the ranks of Islam uh, growing at a very high rate that Surah At-Tawbah 
didn't come, or that Surah Tawbah did was intended to make um, people uncomfortable. So these traditions typically say that Surah Tawbah came as as surah as the mufahhisa the, the 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 scrutinizing surah wal basmala rahma wa aman and basmala communicates peace and tranquility and the intended effect of surah at-tawbah was not peace and tranquility it was precisely to get you to focus on something other than Allah's mercy and Allah's amen. Allah's, so it's like saying, you know, I have hard questions and I need you to focus on these hard questions from the beginning and not on the self-serving concepts that might get you not to confront the hard questions. Now, if we don't accept this interpretation, then we simply don't know why, um, you know, if, if someone, and, and it's entirely plausible or entirely respectful when someone says, well, you know, but that interpretation in itself is too interpretive. In other words, we, we're trying to figure out a reason through why it might be possible. And I would, and I think that's very, very respectable position, but then we just simply don't have a reason why Surah Tawbah doesn't start with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Other than it, that it was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ just this way. Okay. So, It is one of these surah that unfortunately will have to go um, pretty much line by line. I mean, we can skip an ayah here and ayahs there that is not, um, but it, it's not a surah that where we can make um, big leaps because it, it, everything matters or in most situations, everything matters. And because this is a 120 ayahs, I think, or around, no more, uh, 129. So it's going to take us uh, a few halakas, inshallah. Okay. So, Bara'atun min Allahi wa rasulihi ila alladhina ahadtum min al-mushrikeen. فسيحوا في الأرض أربعة أشهر وعلموا أنكم غير معجز الله وأن الله مخزي الكافرين وأذان من الله ورسوله إلى الناس يوم الحج الأكبر أن الله بريء من المشركين ورسوله فإن تبتم فهو خير لكم وإن توليتم فاعلموا أنكم غير معجز الله وبشر الذين كفروا بعذاب أليم Okay, so let's, let's see how Muhammad Asad, uh, let's start with that at least. Okay, 
So that word at the be uh, at the beginning, bara'a. Muhammad as it translates it as disavoyal to disavow something by God and God's apostle is herewith announced unto those who ascribe divinity to art beside God and with whom you you believers have made a covenant. So the meaning of the first ayah at least is quite clear that it is in notice that the treaty that had existed, now we take a, a step back, during the three years in which there was an active treaty, as we said, between Muslims and Mecca, and although this treaty was supposed to be for 10 years, there was clearly an increased anxiety. Mecca, it was quite clear for Mecca and allies that what they expected would happen didn't happen. And that is, instead of the treaty effectively spread, stopping the spread of Islam, as we said before, the size of Muslims increased three times that the three years um, served Muslims more than the seven, the, um, not seven, but more than the, 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 the entire, the, the, the whole period including the Mecca period and all the years in Medina before these three years. And I am convinced that Mecca didn't just see the, the anxiety in terms of tribes outside Mecca converting to Islam and receiving emissaries from Medina to teach them about Islam, because that was in fact what was going on, is that tribes would approach the, the Prophet and say, we're interested in Islam, can you send some people to teach us what Islam is all about? And so he would send with them um, whatever number of companions to um, effectively become their, their resident teachers for the tribe. But Mecca saw, the, or at least the, 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 the leaders of Mecca, saw the very high rate of conversions within Meccan society itself. I mean, the, the writing was on the wall. Um, times have changed. And the cultural threat was quite, and the ideological threat was quite clear. And this anxiety on part of the Meccan leadership 
is what led the Meccan leadership to supply an art to, to contrary to the terms of the treaty to supply an uh, an ally with arms so that this ally can then um, wage an attack. I mean, it, it's sort of the the type of ir- irrationality that comes when you have um, you have sort of the 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 moderates like Abu Sufyan or the you know uh, and the hardliners uh, in in Meccan society who, who were saying you know we're, we're losing this uh, this this battle we we need to resort back to violence to restore the good old days. But what is striking? So the treaty has been violated, and it is, according to the the practice confirmed by Muslims, is that you cannot resume hostilities without sending notice that you deem the treaty to have been breached and thus that the treaty has terminated which is a practice considered an honorable practice known to the region, to the international relations of the time, that if you're an honorable foe, that's what you do. You don't, you don't just attack right away, but you say, okay, now because of the following reasons, I think that you know, I, I hereby declare or put you on, on notice that the treaty has been dissolved. But what was notable in the revelation in Surah At-Tawbah is فَسِيحُ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَرْبَعَةَ أَشْهُرِ This, so the announcement was not just that the treaty is now dissolved and we are going back to a state of war, but if you notice in the verse 2, go then freely about the earth for four months and know that you never elude God, uh, and so on. In other words, to give a grace period of four months, what this meant was that hereby we are giving you a grace period of four months before the resumption of hostile relations. Now, this is something. Although there are, there are a number of books on about Islamic international law, but even these books, um, uh, including books written in in the English language, um, it's it's remarkable. You know how some the very obvious things. Sometimes people just uh, miss miss them because academics tend to read each other and if the first academic to write about a topic in this case Mashrid Khadouri misses something then everyone that writes after them also misses it but this was rather remarkable because what do you think the Meccans are going to do during these four months they're going to prepare for war. So you're actually 
putting your enemy on notice and saying, although you breached this this treaty and thus the treaty is dissolved, out of fairness, I'm going to give you a four months grace period to rearrange your affairs from the presumption of peace to preparing for war. Of course, even the ethics of jurists commenting, writing on Islamic international law, this this type of prescriptive, it was too ahead of its time. It was too moral. So you, you found that even when someone like Shaibani, when he wrote about Islamic international law, you know, read this verse as saying, well, you know, this is something that was done because this was uh, because this was Quraysh and and because of the family relations between the Prophet and Quraysh, although there's no evidence whatsoever that that was the reason. I mean, none. It, it was just him trying to logic through it. All we know is that this is Allah's revelation, is that there's a four-month grace period and... And sort of at the same time, this this fascinating warning is like saying, you know, I'm giving you a four-month period, but know that if you think because we are giving you this four-month grace period that you, that you will be able to, def- to defeat what Allah wants, well, I'm also letting you know that uh, that you will not be able to overcome what Allah's will. You will not be able, as the translation um, will say, and know that you will never elude God. What the translate what the, the translation is that you will never be able to over, to defeat what God has intended. Now, of course, the temptation is to simply read this as saying to the outsider, the the external enemy, that, you know, okay, we're giving you four four months, but it's not going to avail you anything. But no, the entire Surah Tawbah is, as we will see, is putting before Muslims, not non-Muslims, but Muslims, the ultimate question of faith before God's will. That the results, although the results might not always be what you would like. What type of faith do you have? So, and and we'll see, and and we'll see this as uh, as the theme goes on. Okay. So, 
there is a four-month period after which, after this four-month period, hostilities can resume. And we do know from the Sira that after the four-month period began the preparations to, to in fact punish Mecca for breaching the treaty, which led to the invasion of, ultimately to the invasion of Mecca, because Mecca simply folded. There, there was no more fighting will. Um, as I said before, the circumstances have sharply changed. But the second, the verse 3, which is, which in the, in the first part, it is addressed to the Mushrikeen of Quraysh, those who had a treaty, and the treaty is resolved. But then in verse 3, وَأَذَانٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ إِلَى النَّاسِ يَوْمَ الْحَجِّ الْأَكْبَرِ That now the proclamation from God and God's Apostle to all humankind on the day of the greatest pilgrimage, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, that a, which, I mean, it, it's not hardly surprising, but that God disavows all who ascribe partners to God, divinity to aught beside God, in other words, mushrikeen partner, those who ascribe partners to God, and so does the apostle, okay? Hence, if you repent, it shall be for your own good, and if you turn away, then know that you can never elude God. The second proclamation is not surprising, but precisely because it's not surprising, it gives us pause. What is meant by the day of the greatest pilgrimage, al-Hajj al-Akbar? Some said, well, it could be referring to the fact that the year after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was dissolved, the Prophet ﷺ put Abu Bakr in charge of the Hajj, and that Al-Hajj al-Akbar refers to a, the, 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 uh, uh, a, a particular moment, Al-Wuquf Bimina, that the particular moment in in the Hajj, and so it's basically saying to is that from that point onwards in the Hajj, which was led by Abu Bakr, um, you are on notice that polytheists will not be tolerated in Mecca. So some interpreted this way. 
And they cite traditions that, um, which try in support of the idea that al-wuquf bimina can be referred to as the day of the the the, the uh, yom al-hajj al-akbar, the day of the greatest pilgrimage. But a number of scholars noticed. I mean, it, it, the that the, this is sort of the incongruency of this because to call al-wuquf bimina as the greatest pilgrimage. So every time there is wukuf bimina, then that is the greatest pilgrimage. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. And they said, no, that what this was talking about, it was effectively alluding, predicting to what will happen, not the year that Abu Bakr leads the, the pilgrimage, but the year after that, and that is the farewell pilgrimage. That at the time Muslims were reading it, they didn't know what it was referring to, but it was effectively sort of hinting, alluding to the fact that sort of a confirmation and underscoring that the path of shirk is a very different path from iman. And when you see the balance of Surah At-Tawbah, that to, to underscore that theme and to sort of say that there is a, there is a, we're reaching now a point where you are your, on your own with an heavy emphasis on the line of demarcation that separates the path of a Surat al-Mustaqim or the path of Iman from the path of those, not the, not the path of just disbelief, but the path of those who struggle with associating partners with God. Now, keep this point in mind because we're going to come back to it. Okay. I think that the second school, which says that this is sort of a, a, a hinting that you are approaching indeed the greatest pilgrimage, the final pilgrimage, the farewell pilgrimage, where the Prophet is, I mean, a new chapter opens for Muslims and they're now the inheritors of the message without the Prophet being between them, uh, is, I think, the, the correct interpretation. Because to say that Hayyam al Hajj al Akbar means, you know, a particular, you know, wukuf in such and such, and that, and it's so every year there is Yom al Hajj al Akbar, it just doesn't make any sense. Okay. Uh, 
Now, for there was a question. Well, there are tribes that were allied with Quraysh, but were not part and parcel of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah had particular signatories. There were a number of tribes that were not Muslim and considered themselves to be allies of Quraysh because of the shared uh, non-Muslim status or because of, you know, of their trade relations with Quraysh. But they had separate agreements with Muslims. And in, in a few examples, tribes that assumed that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, um, there, there, there is a windfall from the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And so after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, they started trading with Muslims. And they reached not a written treaty, but an oral agreement with Muslims that, okay, you know, if uh, if you are, um, um, that if you're, if you're not, you're not going to fight Mecca for the next 10 years, well, we, you know, we can we have a similar type of arrangement? And there's an oral agreement that, okay, there won't be fighting between us for the next 10 years. And the question came up uh, as to, well, and and so and subhanAllah, the, the Quranic revelation itself, I think, anticipated that question coming up because it's as if it's saying, well, when some people read this, that there is bara'a, there is a disavowal, by, a disavowal, a disavowal by, by God and the Prophet, that they, there will be some people who say, okay, so that means all treaties with all kuffar or mushrikeen have now been dissolved. And the Quran comes and says, no. There is a treaty that has been dissolved because of a breach. And in case of this treaty, a grace period has been given of four months. However, those that you have agreements with who have not violated their agreements, then you must allow these agreements to be to reach their their date of maturity or date of expiration. In other words, if the treaty is for one year, then that then be it. If the treaty is for two years or 10 years, the terms of the treaty must be carried to, to the end. So, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ عَهَدْتُمْ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَنْقُصُوكُمْ شَيْئًا 
وَلَمْ يُظَاهِرُ عَلَيْكُمْ So they, they, they did not violate their treaties and did not conspire against you. فَأَتِمُّوا إِلَيْهِمْ عَهْدَهُمْ إِلَى مُدَّتِهِمْ Then you must continue to observe the agreements till the end. What time is it? Oh, let's uh, let's stop and pray, pray Maghrib. So we uh, are. So it, so yeah, we talked about verse four. That except for those that you have a treaty with. Um, okay. So then, let's move on. فَإِذًا سَلَخَ الْأَشْخُرُ الْحُرُمْ فَاقْتُلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ وَخُذُوهُمْ وَاحْصُرُوهُمْ وَاقْعُدُوا لَهُمْ كُلَّ مَرْصَدٍ فَإِنْ تَابُوا وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاءَ فَخَلُّوا سَبِيلَهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ okay. وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ أَبْلِغْهُ مَأْمَنَهُ so five verse five is what is as uh, um, is the verse that Unfortunately, in, in, in my opinion, er, quite erroneously, uh, some commentators point to as the verse abrogating everything else that pretty much the Quran says about how to deal with um, uh, non-Muslims or non-believers. But of course, that's absurd. I mean, you cannot understand any text except in relation with every other part of the text. Everything has to. You, it is because if you pluck anything and you consider it to be the end all of everything, and to, to the extent of saying that it abrogates everything before it. And as we will see, inshallah, when we deal with Surah Al-Ma'idah, even things that come after it, that it abrogates what is before and what is after it, that is quite willful. I mean, that is just simply injecting your own or projecting your own biases into a 
a single statement that, for whatever reason, you want to consider to be uh, prevailing over all else. But, okay, but what, so what 5 says, and so when the sacred months are over, slay those who ascribe a mushrikeen, though, slay those who, according to Muhammad, ascribe, who ascribe odd divinity, who, sorry, who ascribe divinity to art beside God. Uh, Muhammad Asad always always translates mushrikeen as those who ascribe divinity to art beside God. So, okay, slay them wherever you may come upon them and take them captive and besiege them and lay in wait for them at every conceivable place. And yet, Yet, if they repent and take to prayer and render the purifying dues, let them go their way, for behold, God is much forgiving a dispenser of grace. Okay. And then take six with it as well. And if any of those who ascribe divinity to art beside God seek thy protection, grant them protection so that they may hear God's word and thereupon convey them to a place where they can feel secure. This because they may be, pe they may be people who uh, sin only because they do not know the truth. Okay. So, the cr critical matter is, who is verse 5 talking about? First, we notice that it says the sacred month, these are the four months in a year known as the month, uh, uh, the Hurum. These are months where in pre-Islamic customs, um, bloodshed it was prohibited. As we will see, Arabs had a way of getting around the prohibition of uh, prohibition against violence in the four sacred months, which the Quran talks about. But we'll come to that. But so the Quran honors the pre-Islamic practice of four months being a month in which violence is prohibited and bloodshed is prohibited. And in, in the shedding of blood, in, I mean, unfortunately, in now in the colonized Islamic consciousness, we, we have completely forgotten this. But the shedding of blood or committing of violence in the four sacred months is especially, uh, it's like an aggravated sin. You know, it, it, already a bad sin becomes particularly aggravated if if committed during these four months. So, so first, the Quran confirms that practice that you are not to commit violence during the four months. Outside the four months. There is a state of war with what verse 5 describes as in, as in Mushrikeen. 
the imperial orientation in Islam, jurists who are working under the influence of the order that they, they were born into, which is an imperial order, said, well, what this means is that consistent with the practice of the day and age at their time, the practice was that there's always a presumption of war as to all people against all people unless otherwise uh, negated by a treaty or an agreement or a custom. That was sort of the, the, the international law that had been established not in the Near East and in, in what was considered the civilized part of the world, which was basically the, the Mediterranean uh, the Mediterranean area, the uh, Red Sea area, and to some extent, to the extent where you get into Asia, to China, and, and these areas. But that gets into a little bit of a complicated matter. But anyway, so that there is a presumption of war against of all against all unless there is a treaty and so they understood this verse as basically saying that the islamic innovation is that islam confirms the idea of four months in a year where that presumption does not hold in other words there is just a, a unilateral one-sided um suspension of violence and hostility from the Muslim side. But beyond that, then we go back to this presumption and there is what is presumed is a state of war between Muslims and non-Muslims unless they negotiate some type of agreement, some type of treaty, some type of armistice, and some of the early opinions in Islamic jurisprudence also said, unless there's also a, a, a customary practice of non-belligerence that exists between the Muslim party and a non-Muslim party. But if you take, if you take the, the, the revelation in the context of what it's talking about, it starts out with a particular enemy, and we'll see this when we get to the again when we we get to the part about jizya. It starts out with talking about a particular enemy, and it and it's and and it says that as to this enemy, there is there was a treaty. The treaty has been breached. The treaty is now dissolved. There's a four-month grace period. Muslim authorities note that if the four months happen to coincide with the sacred months, then the expiration of the four months, then the expiration of the sacred months is also an expiration of the four months because they fell at the same time. So in other words, you know, the, the four-month grace period if, but if the four months, let's say the, the, after the four months, you, you discover that you fall upon 
the beginning of this four sacred months. Then in that case, what's the non-hostility period? It becomes eight months. Why? Because you've passed the four months, and then if you find that after the four months have passed, you're beginning the sacred months, then you have to wait till the end of the sacred months. So after the expiration of the four months, if the if you fall upon the sacred months and the four sacred months have not expired, then the period has to be extended. And after, other than the sacred months and other than the four months grace period, remember that it just told us that those you have a treaty with you have an agreement with, then the, then the treaty continues to be valid. What the clear import, the clear meaning of verse 5 is that as to the people in question, what will resume after the grace period and the sacred month is a state of hostility where the presumption is you have an enemy personnel of course enemy personnel meant men of fighting age so women are exempted from this children are exempted from this all the elderly are exempted from this um there in some opinions farmers or people who according to the customs of the age were were not considered to be men who carry arms were exempted from this but as to those who are of basically fighting material enemy because who at that time an enemy combatant is anyone who is capable of carrying weapons and there was a presumption that it is men of a particular age who are always presumed to be those capable of carrying weapons. And therefore, they were considered combatants unless, again, there is an otherwise something that takes them out of the status. So the clear import is that other than the four months, grace period and other than the sacred months you go back to a presumption of continuing hostility in which men enemy combatants within the meaning of enemy combatants of the time become fair game you can go after them you can capture them and in fact when it's, although you know Orientalists have made such a big deal out of this, when the Quran says, which again, the, literally the, the translation is besiege them and lay in wait for them at every conceivable place, meaning what? Meaning a state of war, meaning be vigilant about now you have a state of war you can't relax if they if you don't take them they'll take you that's that's the existing state between you 
but immediately the Quran recognizes an exception within this that although you have that state of war that presumption of a state of war if you have individuals that come and say give us safe conduct give us a man and give us protection give us your, your assurance because we want to come in to hear what your message is about now we know from practice that there was an issue that came up is that among the tribes allied to Quraysh, and I'm not sure if among Qurayshis themselves, but definitely among the tribes allied to Quraysh, some of them claimed, asked Muslims for a safe conduct to come to hear God's word. But upon arriving in Medina, they seemed to be far more interested in buying and selling. And the, 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 um, that complaint reaches the Prophet is that, well, we gave these people safe conduct, but they're really not interested in listening to anything about the Quran, or they're just doing business. And basically the Prophet, uh, you know, basically says, let it be. Um, but the safe conduct opportunity and upon the expiration of the safe conduct, they must be taken, they must be allowed to reach a place of safety. So in other words, what? No treasury. I mean, these are, if you understand the historical moment, you also understand the, the way the, the Quran crafts ethical norms that you can't say, well, time's up, um, you know, we have an advantage, let's use it. Even the, the, the whole idea of a grace period given uh, to Quraysh. Now, the irony is that, of course, you notice that the, the jurists who were working and influenced by the imperial age that in which they were born, when they thought of the four months grace period, they thought that that's limited to Quraysh. But they read verse 5 as extending far beyond Quraysh, while an ethical reading of the Quran would do exactly the reverse. Would say, well, if God gave Quraysh four months grace period, then obviously that's a normative value that God is trying to establish. Basically, you, you, you do everything possible to, because during these four months, it could be that the enemy prepares for war, but it could be that the enemy manages to reach another peace agreement with you. And so it's like giving peace another chance. And verse 5, which is clearly intended 
to be talking about Mushrikeen Quraysh because as we will see, the assumption that shirk disappeared from Arabia right after the fall of Mecca is completely unjustified. It doesn't, that's not the reality. The reality is Mushrikeen continue to exist and in some cases they've entered into agreements with Muslims to pay the jizya, like every, just like everyone else. Okay. So, so this this critical point that now you are going to you although you have a state of war with Quraysh, but still, those who want an opportunity, even if it is a fake opportunity, even if they're using this this opportunity. In, in a fake way. Nevertheless, uh, they must be granted that opportunity and you cannot betray them. Uh, in other words, afterwards, they must reach a point of complete safety. Okay. Then... Seven, كيف يكون للمشركين عهد عند الله وعند الرسول وعند رسوله إلا الذين عاهدتم عند المسجد الحرام فما استقاموا لكم فاستقيموا لهم إن الله يحب المتقين كيف وإن يظهروا عليكم لا يرقبوا فيكم إلا ولا زمة يردونكم بأفواههم وتأبى قلوبهم وأكثرهم فاسقون أوكي اشتروا بآيات الله ثمنا قليلا فصدوا عن سبيله إنهم ساء ما كانوا يعملون and then again ten is a confirmation of the same لا يرقبون في مؤمن إلا ولا زمة وأولئك هم المعتدون so here again is let's some jurists read this kayfa yakunu lil mushrikeena ahdun inda allahi wa inda rasuli how can be those who uh, uh, the mushrikeen Again, Muhammad as a translator ascribed divinity to art beside God. Be he translates it as granted a covenant. I think a more proper translation would be be trusted with a covenant. Some jurists read this portion and said, well, so what it's talking about is that a covenant, a treaty with non-believers after this, after the the Mecca, the, the conquering of Mecca, it is not to be, uh, is not acceptable. But then you're taking half the ayah 
not just you're taking just a portion of the of the Quranic verse and you're and you're abandoning or ignoring the rest of the verse. So go back and see what it says. Okay, so how could they be trusted with a covenant except so it is like it's asking it's addressing the issue of the still the breach of the covenant that was in fact breached and saying it is understand the nature of this breach in fact they it was if you it's like saying you know it is not really a surprise that they ended up breaching this covenant but yet it the rest of the same verse it puts in a caveat by saying however there are still those and here when it says still those it's it means it's it's still talking about the same people it accepted in verse 2 that the tribes that were allied to Quraysh that had agreements with Muslims that did not breach these agreements so when the rest of this verse so as long as they remain true to you be true to them for God loves those who are conscious of God that's the part that the school that I just mentioned ignore because it's clearly talking about two parties a party that is in violation and a party that continues to honor its agreements with Muslims and it says well those who honor their agreements with Muslims you continue to honor the agreements but as to those who did not honor their agreements with Muslims it is no surprise that they didn't do so. Why is it that why is it that it is no surprise that they didn't do so? Because from the very beginning, those that entered into this agreement were not sincere about it. So one, you're doonakum that when they entered into this agreement and said whatever they said that was not hostile they it's their tongues spoke but their hearts would remain defiant they, they didn't really want peace with you the and and in my view the Meccan aristocracy it's not just that they remained defiant when they entered the peace agreement but even in my view the Meccan aristocracy even after they converted to Islam they remained defiant that the, the Meccan aristocracy never made peace before Islam or after Islam with the fact that Muhammad conquered them or Muhammad ultimately defeated them and that ultimately 
the 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 lifestyle and the world that they knew um, was threatened, and that's why they ended up killing the the grandson of the Prophet But anyway, that that will take us into because it's that same aristocracy that did that. Anyway, so and Allah tells Muslims. You know, the fact of the matter is that the reason that the state of hostility is justified against these people, that if the balance of powers were different, this is eight and nine, that if the balance of powers were different, if they could, they would honor no obligation, no virtue towards you. In other words, they would treat you with absolutely without any honor. It's, they hate you, and that has not changed, and that's precisely why they were not sincere. They thought that this peace treaty is going to go their way. Okay, what is the import of this beyond the historical moment that the Prophet ﷺ lived in? It's like saying, it's not a matter of what formal agreement you enter into. It's a matter of understand your opponent. Are they truly tolerant of you? Or are they just simply giving you lip service? But in reality, I mean, if, if Muslims would have just learned from Surah At-Tawbah, you wouldn't have found Muslims who became influenced by French colonialism, or Muslims who were influenced by British colonialism, or Muslims who became influenced by today, by Zionism. Because they would know that it's clear. I mean, these folks have never shown any goodwill towards Islam or Muslims. And everything from the history of colonialism to Orientalism to settler colonialism to post-Oriental to modern-day Orientalism is that, you know, if they get the opportunity to deconstruct anything Islamic they do, they are in a rabid state of absolute indignation. So it's not a matter of... So what is your obligation? Your obligation is to strengthen yourself, to discharge your obligations, because you cannot discharge your obligations towards God's covenant in enjoining the good and forbidding the evil if you're weak. And if you really want peace, then you must be in a position of strength so you can make peace. The weak, the weak, can only enter into fake peace. The weak enters into the type of peace through wh by which the weak is subjugated and dominated. That's not peace. That's just simply, you know, camouflage surrender. 
if you want peace, and we are obligated to, to want peace, peace must be our goal. Because as Allah said, that we've made you into nations and tribes to come to know one another, not to fight. But in order for us to achieve peace, we must be strong. We must be, peace must be an equation in which we are not dominated and subjugated. And that is the entire problem. If if people understood the moral lessons of Surah At-Tawbah, our fate as Muslims could have been entirely different. But, you know, Surat, the whole the ethic of it's, it's not the, the caricatured image of Surat Tawbah is saying, oh, there is an abode of Islam and an abode of infidels and the two. No, that's 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 a that's the view of the Hashawiyah and the view of the Orientalists, the, the, the dumbing down of Islam into idiocies. Surat Tawbah is giving you a morally sophisticated lesson, as sophisticated at the morality of the Qur'an of Mecca itself. If only, and that is why you'll find that Surah Tawbah also constantly a, a, a refrain to those who reason, those who understand, those who can comprehend, those who can think. What time is it? Oh, okay. Okay, um, let's stop here because I'm mindful of people's you know the the week tomorrow, and inshallah next halakha we'll we'll we'll, we'll meet we'll meet on Saturday again um, to continue with Surah at Um Do do you want to come and make a short closing? Okay, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, Sheikh. This was incredible. Even though we only got to the um, first, I guess, uh, ten <laughs> verses, but it's amazing. Um, you know, it's, it's already mind-blowing that, as you said, this is the second to the last major surah. So that in itself is really exciting and incredible and sad, bittersweet, the idea that we're getting close to the end of this message, knowing that already um, it's getting hinted that, you know, we're getting to the time where the Prophet will no longer be with us. Um, so that already makes it so significant. Um, and just um, you know just the last two things that you said that were so striking for our world which is this idea the sophisticated idea that one we are obligated to want peace and to achieve peace that we have to be strong and not dominated and subjugated um, and that it's part of our obligation to um, to find that strength and so when you think about well what does that and also to know your opponent Right. So mm. for our world, when we see these so-called Muslim leaders getting in bed with Israel and um, knowing full well what they say and what they do and yet ignoring all of that, um, it's it's so apropos, so relevant to our world and what we struggle with. Um, but the idea of how do you how do you gain strength in in a world like ours when you see that Muslims are at the bottom of the barrel of everything? Um, and it just it starts number one with awareness education you know thinking I mean all of the things that you teach us whether it's in the khutbah or whether it's in the halakas just being um, 
in command and in mastery of your world and understanding what's happening um, so that you can begin to figure out what needs to be done. You know, it's being truthful. It's, it's being, you know, um, at the forefront of, of knowledge and understanding. And then from there, building strength through, you know, all the other things we talk about. But so, uh, I mean, alhamdulillah, this is just an incredible start. And so I'm so excited to continue um, it'll be, inshallah, if we're, you know, 10 verses in and it's 128 verses, we'll have a nice long engagement with this surah. I just wanted to mention, too, that um, this was a surah that was adopted by Cameron Lee, who um, was our dear friend who passed away of cancer um, during at, at the beginning of Ramadan of this year. So, um, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm just, every time I think of Surah Al-Tawbah, I think of him. And so I just wanted to, to call out, you know, his name. Um, you know, he's the one that I had also a conversation with a month before he passed away. Um, so alhamdulillah, you know, I, this is this is an honor for, for him and all of us. And um, so thank you. And I'm so excited to reconnect again in a week's time, inshallah, for the continuation. Okay, so everybody have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next Saturday, inshallah. Okay, assalamu alaikum.